0: Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to baysidechapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, in the 1800s, there was a a tightrope walker by the name of Charles Blondine. And this guy thought of the craziest idea. He got it in his mind to cross the Niagara Falls on a two-inch thick tightrope. On the morning of June 30th, 1859, uh, 25,000 people flocked uh, to both the American side of the falls and the Canadian side of the falls, wanting to see with their very own eyes if something this insane was even possible. So just before 5 p.m. that day, Blondine took his position on the American side of the falls and he began his journey 1,100 feet across to the Canadian side um, on this thin wire that was suspended 200 feet in the air. In just 23 minutes, he made it from the American side to the Canadian side and then back to the American side again. And that day became... Um, The very first day that anybody crossed the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Now, as if that wasn't daring enough, Blondine went on to announce that he was going to do this again, a a lot more times in the upcoming months, but each attempt was going to be more dangerous, more brave than the previous attempt, and that's what he did over the following months. He crossed the Niagara Falls uh, walking backwards, then he gave it another shot, this time he crossed blindfolded, uh, and then he even crossed on stilts. Uh, One time, he even carried a stove and utensils on his back. He walked to the center of the tightrope and then he started a fire and he cooked himself an egg omelette. But the craziest stunt of all was when he decided to carry a man on his back and cross the falls. So, Harry Colcord was uh, Blondine's manager and he had so much faith in Blondine that he volunteered to cling to Blondine's back as he crossed. The falls. So Blondine gave his manager the following instructions. He said, Look up, Harry. You're no longer Colcord, but you are Blondine. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. So Colcord didn't only cling to Blondine's back, but he, he clung to every single word that Blondine said, and they crossed successfully. Now imagine, with me for a moment, if halfway across, the manager taps Blondine on the shoulder and says, "Listen, I really appreciate that you've taken me this far, but I really don't trust you anymore. I think I'm going to do the rest myself, so if you don't mind, just let me off your shoulders here, and then I'll take it from here." Can you imagine how tragic that would have been? he would have died. If he was carried that far, why in the world would he think that he could cross the rest of the way in his own strength, by himself? That'd be crazy, right? It's almost as crazy as us telling Jesus, listen, Jesus, I really appreciate that you've taken me this far in my journey, but I think I'm going to handle the rest myself. I know what to do. I can, I can take it from here. And yet this is the very thinking that the Apostle Paul addresses in the first half of Galatians chapter 3. See, one of the greatest misconceptions about the Christian life is that Jesus saves us from hell when we die, but until that day comes, we have to grow and mature in our own strength using our own resources. But that's a misunderstanding of the gospel's call to walk by faith. Just as faith in Christ alone led to our salvation, so does faith in Christ alone lead to our spiritual growth, what we call sanctification. And that's one of the things Paul emphasized um, at the end of the previous chapter in Galatians 2.20. He said that you have been crucified with Christ, and the old you no longer lives. It's dead. But now Christ lives in you, and the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So the Christian life you now live, you live by faith so now at the start of Galatians 3, Paul's going to expand upon that and prove to us the necessity of faith. What Paul's going to argue in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1-14 through 14, is that from start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. From start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. See, so many of us think that our spiritual growth is, is more an exercise of our will than it is an exercise of faith. We believe that we get into the Christian life by God's grace, through faith, but then we act as if the rest is up to us. It's as if we get to the middle of the tightrope and say, Jesus, I'm good. I think I'll take it from here. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see three arguments that makes the case that from start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. So here's the first one. The spiritual experience of the believer proves the need for faith. The spiritual experience of the believer proves the need for faith. So in the first five verses, Paul reminds the Galatians of everything that happened to them and everything that happened around them when he first brought the gospel to them. It was obvious to Paul that these Christians had experienced something supernatural when they first heard and responded to the message of God's salvation that comes through faith in Christ. But along then came this group of legalistic Judaizers who were trying to convince the Galatians that their experience wasn't complete, that they needed something more. Jesus alone wasn't enough. It was Jesus and the Old Testament law. So it was faith and works. And unfortunately, some of the Galatians were were buying into this nonsense. So Paul begins with a pretty harsh rebuke. Let's jump right into verse 1, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Here's how Paul starts it out. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So now Paul, here, he's got fire in his heart. He's got fire in his pen as he's writing this letter down to them. And he's addressing the Galatians as fools. And they were turning away from the message of grace through faith. And they began embracing a message of grace through faith and works. And the deception of the Judaizers was so potent that it was as if the Galatians were under a spell. That's why he says, who's bewitched you? It's like when a magician uses sleight of hand to divert the eyes and attention of the audience to one place so he could switch out an object with another object. Well, these legalists were pulling the church's attention away from the true focus of their salvation. They were losing their focus on Jesus and his finished work and were instead focusing on their attention on the law and on their own works, not his finished work. See, Paul's not questioning their intelligence here. What he's doing is he's questioning their discernment. Then Paul launches into a series of rhetorical questions um, that he knows they know the answer to, and he does this in hopes of of jolting them back to the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, we know that the the moment a person receives, uh, through faith, the salvation offered by Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in that new believer. So Paul's question is striking at the very heart of the gospel. He's saying, how did you begin your Christian life? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by observing the law, or did you receive the Holy Spirit by faith, by trusting in the person and work of Jesus? And of course, the answer is that all believers receive the Spirit by faith. And the answer was obvious to the, Gent- the Galatian believers because remember, they weren't even Jewish. They, they, they didn't have or, or know the law. And yet they're trying to argue this former Jew who was really intelligent, knew the law inside and out. So he kind of just mops the floor with them when it comes to, to, to his knowledge of the law. So he goes on in verse three. He says, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, there were two ways that the Judaizers were um, deceiving the Galatian Christians. They wanted to add law as a necessary component to receiving salvation, but they also wanted to add law as a necessary component for their spiritual growth. Again, we call that sanctification. But the problem is both of those roads... Have dead ends. They go nowhere. Paul's point is that the Holy Spirit came to indwell the Galatians by faith, and it's the Holy Spirit who enables them to grow by faith. If their own law keeping and and, and their own self effort weren't enough to save them, to justify them, why in the world do they think that these kinds of things are going to sanctify them? The Christian life began by the power of the Spirit, and it continues by the power of the Spirit. Verse 4 He says, Do you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, so here again Paul is appealing to the early experience of these Galatians. After their conversion to Christ, they suffered persecution for their faith in Christ, mostly or largely at the hands of the Jews. And you could read about that, the the historical uh, background for all of this uh, is in Acts chapters 13 and 14. So you could read that and understand everything that's going on here. So Paul's essentially asking here though, he's saying, listen, if you suffered so much for your faith at the hands of the Jews, why in the world would you turn back to obeying Jewish law? If you do that, you're going to empty your suffering of all of its meaning and you're going to be sending the message that the Jews are right to persecute you to begin with. And then he goes on in verse 5. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, this question from Paul focuses not on their initial response uh, to, to the gospel um, and, and their and receiving the Holy Spirit. But here it's talking about their their present work and God's present work in their lives and in their midst. And Paul's saying here that, that God continues to give his spirit and to work miracles among you. He, he's constantly pour, pouring his blessings out on you, and he does this the same way he's done it from the beginning, not because of your attempts at, at keeping the rules, but because of faith by depending on and trusting in him. So in these first five verses, Paul's proving that faith is a crucial component for the spiritual experience in our lives. What we've experienced, what our senses, what we've experienced in the deepest parts of our, inner, of our inner being, these are all proofs of the need for faith. Right? We heard with our ears the message of God's grace made possible through faith in Christ. We received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. We endure the physical and emotional torment of pain and suffering by trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. We witness with our eyes God working miracles and transforming people because of our dependence on him. See, from start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. So let this be a reminder to us then of the importance of depending on Jesus and him alone to run the race of faith through us because we can't do it apart from him. We didn't look to the law to save us. We didn't trust in works to save us. We didn't put our faith in politicians to save us. We didn't rely on religious rituals to save us. No, we looked to the cross of Christ in humble dependence and said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am lost without you, save me. And just as we look to Jesus with that kind of humble dependence uh, to justify us, so we look to him with that kind of humble dependence to sanctify us. The one who began a good work in you is the one responsible for bringing that good work to its completion. For God is the one who sanctifies you completely, all of you, spirit, soul, and body. And let's always be on guard for anything that smells like legalism. The false teachers here in in Galatia, they were intelligent, they were persuasive, they probably had dynamic personalities, they probably had a, a lot of charisma, yet they were used as a tool by the enemy of the church to create division and to sow discord. The Galatians lacked discernment, though, in recognizing this kind of legalism. They lacked the ability to discern truth and, and, and to distinguish sound doctrine from this subtle and deceptive form of legalism. Pastor Dave, by the way, talked a lot about legalism last week in his sermon, so if you weren't around, I definitely encourage you to check that out on YouTube. But, but the point of all this is that the remedy... For legalism is to discern when it creeps toward you and to put your focus back on the gospel, to refocus onto the cross of Christ, to fix your gaze back on Jesus and faith. See, when churches make a priority of submitting to certain rules, to certain standards, or even uh, to their own uh, man-made uh, preferences, we call that legalism. Right? When there's an emphasis on rules, uh, such as going to the movies, going dancing, Uh, Gambling or drinking, though these rules have value and though they are very good because they could prevent Christians from getting into precarious situations, tempting situations where they'll end up sinning. But what happens is these things become legalistic when they take the place of the role of the Spirit in our lives, whose job it is to produce fruit in our lives. Or when Christians elevate, they're human preferences, and make sure the whole world knows about them as if those preferences are authoritative. That, that's legalism, right? And this could come in so many forms. There are preferences that believe that, that no Christian men should have earrings. That was me. I got blasted at a school I was at when I was young because I had my ears pierced. Um, but there, no churches should have drums. They thought I was evil there, too, because I played the drums, No Christian should have tattoos, no women should wear makeup and they shouldn't have uh, skirts that come above their ankles. Uh, you shouldn't associate with unbelievers. You can't put your kids in a costume for Halloween. You should only read one divinely authorized translation of scripture. You should only homeschool your children. You should only vote the way the rest of us vote. Uh, you shouldn't get vaccinated and on and on and on and on and on. These, these rules go. Well, all of these cultural differences and personal preferences are held with the, with the same convictions of important doctrines. That's legalism when that happens. That's legalism. It's plain old grade A legalism. So so the encouragement for us is to keep legalism at an arm's length. And when something comes your way that looks good, that sounds good, um, that that seems like it might be true, but it's at the expense of the, the, the primacy of the gospel, avoid it because it's not the gospel and it's probably legalistic. So our remedy for legalism is to keep focused on the fact that Jesus is the one who is responsible for our lives of faith. We cannot earn Our justification, justification refers to that one-time act when we place our faith in Christ at the moment of our conversion. So so we can't earn our justification. We can't uh, achieve our sanctification. That's that ongoing process of spiritual growth. Nor can we merit our glorification. Glorification referring to that future time when we're resurrected into eternity. See, the entirety of our salvation, all of it, is a gracious work of God the Father made possible by the death and resurrection of God the Son and empowered by the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. Our role is simply to respond in faith, in humble dependence on the God who loves us, saves us, and redeems us. From start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. Now, in the next verses of Galatians, Paul's going to shift arguments here a little bit, and he's going to shift the argument to prove another one of his points. Not only does the spiritual experience of the believer uh, prove the need for faith, but now the second argument we'll see is this. The scriptural evidence of the Old Testament proves the need for faith. The scriptural evidence of the Old Testament proves the need for faith. See, because we should never judge scripture by our experiences, instead we're supposed to test our experiences to see if they're in line with scripture, Paul is now going to use an example from the Old Testament to support his teaching of the importance of faith. Now remember that the Judaizers hung everything on the Old Testament. They loved their law of Moses, they loved uh, Father Abraham, and because they magnified the position of Abraham in their religion, Paul's going to use Abraham to prove his point, starting in verse six. Paul says, "Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness." Now, if you recall, Abraham lived um, in 2000 BC, so he lived about 4,000 years ago. He was the founder of the nation Israel. He's the one God chose to begin revealing His plan of uh, of redemption for humanity, and God made some pretty incredible promises. To Now, two of the things he promised was that Abraham would become the father of a new nation. And the second thing he promised was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by his offspring. Which was especially incredible for Abraham because he had no children of his own and he was an old man when God told him this. Remember that the Judaizers were teaching that only those who were circumcised and kept Jewish laws would be acceptable to God. You you trusted in Christ, good, but you don't stop there. Now you have to do this, and you have to do that, and then you're good. You have to become a a, a true Jew. So in verse 6, Paul here is quoting Genesis 15, where Abraham first responded to God's promise by trusting in him. See, though he didn't have a son at the time, Abraham believed that God would keep his word and do as he promised, and he followed God's leading. In other words, he had faith. That's a beautiful picture of faith. So what did God do? God declared Abraham as righteous. He saved Abraham. Paul here is showing from Abraham's life that even the patriarch of the Jewish nation himself was saved by God's grace through faith, not by the religious act of circumcision and not by keeping the law. He wasn't saved by any of that. And how do we know that? Well, Abraham was saved in Genesis 15. That's when he's declared righteous. And then circumcision happens later in Genesis 17, more than a decade after his salvation. Now, the story of Abraham is given chronologically, so that means Genesis 15 would be here, and Genesis 17 would be here. Which one came first? Genesis 15. So he was saved More than a decade before he was even circumcised. So circumcision didn't save him. He was saved by faith. Then on top of that, he wasn't saved by the law because Moses doesn't come into the picture until more than 400 years after Abraham. So he wasn't saved by the law either. Paul wants to make it crystal clear that Abraham was justified by God's grace for no other reason than the simple fact that he had faith in God and he took him at his word. That's how it was for Abraham 4,000 years ago. That's how it was for the Galatians 2,000 years ago. And that's how it is for us today in this room. Verse 7. Paul goes on. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, Paul here is pointing out. Another flaw in their thinking. The Judaizers were proud of their Jewish heritage, right? So much so that, that many of them believed they inherited salvation simply because they were descendants of Abraham. But what Paul's saying here is he's saying, well, no, not quite. The true children of Abraham are those who believe God. That's the true child of Abraham. As far as your salvation is concerned, your heritage and your nationality have nothing to do with it. Your works and your merit have nothing to do with it. Your rules and your laws have nothing to do with it. The only thing that matters is faith in the person and promises of God. And then Paul shows that God's promise to Abraham even predicted the future salvation of the Gentiles by grace through faith. Look at verse 8. He says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, Paul here is quoting from Genesis chapter 12, showing that the blessing that God promised to Abraham was intended to be a blessing that God had for all nations and all people, not just the Jews. So when Christ, the second person, of the Trinity, who existed with the Father and with the Spirit from eternity past, when he stepped down from heaven to be born as a man, he entered the world into the Jewish race. He entered as a descendant of Abraham. So all the nations would be blessed in Abraham because his descendant, Jesus, would bring salvation to all the people of all the nations. Which is why Paul can say in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul brings to conclusion here his second argument by making it clear that although God's provision of salvation was made for all nations, only people of faith will benefit from that salvation. And using the story of Abraham, Paul argues that the evidence of the Old Testament is another proof of the need for faith. Now, before we go on in the passage, I want to make sure that we understand uh, what faith is, because it's a word that gets uh, tossed around a lot. Even in the Bible, it's used, there are different Greek or Hebrew words that translate faith. So it's important to know that what we're talking about when we're using the word faith. See, oftentimes we hear it being used simply along the lines um, of believing that, that something exists, right? So in that case, saying, I believe in God is no different than someone else saying, I believe in UFOs or I believe in aliens. In that case, faith is nothing more than simply an exercise of the intellect. It's a belief of the mind that something is true or that something exists. But that misses entirely the idea of biblical faith. Faith isn't simply an intellectual understanding of God. That kind of faith doesn't save you. Simply believing the right things about God is useless in and of itself. You can know a lot of things about God. You can acquire a lot of facts about the Bible. You can understand deep things about theology. You can intellectually grasp all these things, but you can still be lost. So what does it mean then to be a person of faith? Well, in, in these 14 verses, in this passage alone, the word translated as faith or belief is used 10 times uh, in these 14 verses. And it's a Greek word that carries the idea of, uh, of a belief, that it involves active reliance on God. A belief that involves active reliance on God. It means that you actively trust God, you commit yourself to him. You don't simply uh, believe facts about Jesus, you personally rely on Jesus. Here's how someone put it um, in a book, actually a book written by a, a philosopher and a scientist they share this story. They said a philosopher, a scientist, and a simple man were all trapped in a cove with these huge vertical cliffs all around them and none of the men were able to swim. So eventually some rescuers arrive. they lower a rope and a harness, um, and then the philosopher grabs the rope. He's the first one to do it, he looks at the rope, he says, ah, this looks like a rope, but I could be mistaken or maybe it's wishful thinking. Or an illusion. So he didn't attach himself to it. He drowned. Then the scientist grabs the rope and he says, ah, this is an 11 millimeter polyester rope with a breaking strain of 2,800 kilograms. It conforms to the MR-1081 standard. And then he proceeds to give an exhaustive and entirely correct analysis of the rope's physical and chemical properties. But he didn't attach himself to it. So he drowned. Finally, the simple man grabs the rope, and he says, well, looks like a rope to me. Regardless, it's my only chance, so I'm grabbing it and trusting it to lift me, to hold me, and to rescue me. And he was saved. See, that's analogous to faith. It's not enough to just believe it, but to appropriate it. So understand that your Christian faith involves a total personal response of trusting in what Jesus has done for you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. That's what biblical faith is. That's the truth we've encountered over and over again in our passage this morning in Galatians 3, that from start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. Now we turn to the next argument Paul's going to use. To prove his point that faith is foundational. So the spiritual experience of the believer proves the necessity of faith. The scriptural evidence of the Old Testament proves the necessity of faith. And now we'll learn this. Number three, the sacrificial execution of Jesus proves the need for faith. The sacrificial execution of Jesus proves the need for faith. So Paul now shifts from God's promise uh, given to Abraham and now he focuses on God's law given to Moses uh, 400 years later and he starts by quoting Deuteronomy. Verse 10, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Again, keep in mind that the Judaizers were claiming that people can be saved by Jesus and the Old Testament law. I love the way one commentator put it. This is what he wrote. Listen to this. He said, A curse is the opposite of blessing. The faith life offers blessing. Life under the law brings only a curse. Law and faith work on different principles. Justification by faith is based on what God does for man. Whereas justification under the law is based on what man does for God. They proceed in different directions. The law requires perfect obedience. There is no room for failure. Seeking righteousness under the law is like a man scaling a cliff. One skip, one slip, and he's dead. For the law demands the full penalty for even the tiniest transgression. He who violates any part of the law is guilty of breaking the whole law. As breaking a single link causes a chain to fail, so does breaking a single requirement of the law cause one's righteousness to crumble. Then, in verse 11, Paul quotes from the prophet Habakkuk, showing that the Old Testament, even after the law was given, communicates the same message that salvation is by faith. Look at verse 11. He says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul is building here an airtight case to get the message across that that the law cannot save. Only faith saves. By quoting from Habakkuk, he's shown that even Israel in the Old Testament was, uh, was, was delivered from the curse of the law, but by faith. As it was with Israel and as it was for the Galatians, so it is for us. The righteousness of God himself becomes ours by faith, never by rules, never by rituals, never by Religious laws were declared righteous by faith, meaning God removes from our account the guilt of sin, he declares us innocent in his divine courtroom, and then he imputes to us his own very righteousness. But all of this happens only by our faith that his grace enables. Then, as if Paul anticipates an objection from those who might want to say, okay, sure, uh, the law doesn't save But you got to at least admit, Paul, that it's fundamental for the Christian life. For Christians to really grow in the Christian life, they need to commit themselves to the law. And to answer this, Paul quotes from Leviticus 18, verse 12. He says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What Paul is saying here is that faith and the law are two mutually exclusive things. You cannot have both. They cannot exist at the same time in your life. By its very nature, law excludes faith. Leviticus, the third book of the law, says that a person can live by the law, but only by perfectly obeying all the works of the law. That's 613 commandments that you have to obey perfectly and not break once. See, the focus of the law is on what man does for God. The focus of faith is on what God does for man. If the law can't save us, and if we can never perfectly fulfill all of the requirements of the law, are we hopeless then? Are we doomed to condemnation? Are we forever cursed? Well, Paul's going to answer that with an emphatic no. Look at verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Now do you see what he's saying here? Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy again, showing that Jesus, the one who did hang on a tree and suffer an excruciating death, that he willingly took upon himself the curse that belonged to you and to me. Christ redeemed us. He purchased us from the the cursed slave market of sin and death, and he did this by his crucifixion. What qualified him to do this? Well, first, he was the son of God, but remember also that Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect, sinless life. He's the only one who ever lived every breath and every moment in perfect submission to the Father and in perfect obedience to every single facet of the law. He lived that perfect life for us so that just as he he was able to take our sins upon himself, he was also able to give to us his perfect righteousness. And then Paul closes this section in verse 14 by giving us two reasons why Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for us. Verse 14, he says, so that this is all for this reason, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus purchased us at the steep price of his own life so that he could make good on his promise to Abraham that salvation would be offered to all people everywhere, Jews and Gentiles alike. And Jesus did what he did so he can give to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of these blessings of salvation, all of these benefits of salvation are given to us by God's grace. We need only to receive them by faith, by trusting in Jesus. His sacrificial execution is the only thing sufficient enough to redeem us from our status as dead sinners and and for him to impart to us his very own life, his very own nature. From start to finish, the Christian life is lived by faith. Now let's bring this to an end by drawing our attention on the, the cross of Christ. See, in many respects, The Galatians were getting tripped up over and over and over again because they kept taking their focus off of the cross. They kept forgetting the work of Jesus on the cross. And maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus told them and told us to observe communion on a regular basis. Here at Bayside, we do that the first Sunday of every month. Maybe that's one of the reasons why. So we won't lose focus of what's primary, lest we succumb to forms of legalism. While we were deserving of the crushing wrath of God's judgment, he sent Jesus to step down and to absorb the death blow from God that belonged to you and to me. He bore the full weight of all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our obligations to the law, and praise him that as he hung there on the cross and before breathing his last breath, he cried out, It is finished because it is finished, because it is finished, if you've trusted in Christ, you have no reason to feel guilt. You have no reason to feel shame. You have no reason to tremble. No reason to try striving and exhausting yourself, attempting to earn God's favor or, or to keep your salvation or to earn his approval or his acceptance. Why? Because it is finished. Jesus' death in our place has paid the price for our release from the curse and from the condemnation of the law. He freed us from the law and he released us to serve him in a new life of grace empowered by his Holy Spirit. What better way to celebrate this wonderful truth than by coming together at the Lord's table? So that's what we're going to do just now. We're going to transition into celebrating and, and observing communion. So if you have your juice and your cracker, you can get that out and get that ready. Now this, Jesus gave two ordinances for the church. One is baptism and one is communion or the Lord's Supper. And baptism um, is a one-time thing that happens um, uh, to a man, woman, or child at the moment that they profess faith in Christ. Um, But then we're told to Observe communion regularly, to do this regularly until the Lord returns. So this is something that's for all believers. If you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, you could observe. And parents, if you have children, just use the sermon as to whether or not you think they're able to participate. Now when we come to the table to observe communion, uh, we focus on two things. We focus on Jesus, but we focus on the blood of Jesus and on the body of Jesus. Uh, The blood of Jesus spilled. For the forgiveness of our sins and the body of Jesus beaten and pierced to take our sins upon himself. But that same body of Christ that was dead was then buried and then three days later was resurrected from the grave. That is his new body and that is a result of his love for us and that's what we get to experience because of our faith in him. So, not only do we celebrate the forgiveness that we have because of what Christ did on our behalf, but we get to celebrate the truth of not only the fact that Christ died for us, but that we died with Christ, that we have his new life. This is what 1 Corinthians 11 says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your Son, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the great lengths that you did, something we can never fully fathom, something we can never um, appreciate to, to, to the fullest. Uh, Lord, we, your grace still marvels us. Um, so many times where we're just, we're just left in awe, wondering why, why me? Who am I that you are mindful of me, Lord? But it's because of who you are. It's not because of who we are, Lord. And thank you, for demonstrating your love to such a degree that, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus. For your, blo- for, your, for your blood that was poured out on our behalf. Thank you for um, subjecting your body to the most excruciating torment and crucifixion. Um, Lord, but we celebrate the fact that you did not stay dead that three days after you were placed in that tomb, by the power of God, you were resurrected. And, Lord, that was the greatest event in all of human history, and that is the, the event that changes everything about us. Lord, so help us to live out that new reality that not only uh, did you resurrect, Lord, but because of your resurrection, you've given us resurrection life as well. Lord, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for, for who you are for us. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may now take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, pray with me, and then let's get ready to lift up another song of worship. Father, thank you For the victory that is ours in Christ, Lord, enable us to live every single day of our Christian lives by faith, Lord, by uh, with an attitude of of not I but Christ, Lord. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we can't do. It's all about what you can do in and through us, Lord, and how you want to do through us things that will just blow our minds. Lord, thank you for the cross. We so easily forget the fullness of your grace. And when that happens, Lord, help us to look to the cross of Calvary where there you took our place. Lord, so we sing in the victory of the cross. We rest in your redeeming love, Jesus. And we stand on the promise of new life. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.